0: this is a story set in what looks like a perfect neighborhood. Rocking chairs on covered porches, manicured lawns, and families looking out for each other. But in this story, the illusion of perfect families and close friendships fractures when a child goes missing. Missing. We're talking about The Perfect Neighborhood with author Liz Alterman on this Desideratum. Desideratum is a Latin word. It means things that you desire as essential. This podcast celebrates storytelling and storytellers as essential. I'm audiobook narrator Teresa Bakken, showcasing the talents of my author and narrator friends. I hope you hear an artist you love or find your next favorite wordsmith. You're giving readers pieces of a puzzle through the different points of view, I felt like I was kind of collecting clues, collecting info as I was going. But then, but then I'm all the whole time I was like, what is really going on? Okay. <laughs> oh good. I'm glad
1: to hear. I always wonder, you know, because it's hard. I think as the author, of course, I know where it's going, or I, I like to think I know where it's going. Sometimes the characters will lead me in a different direction, but I'm always wondering. Okay, will the reader be engaged or will they see this? And then, unfortunately, sometimes I will talk it over with my family. So then I feel like I lose a fresh audience in them. You know, I'll ask my husband, okay, what do you think? And he's like, well, honestly, you already told me what was going to happen. So I can't be objective anymore. I'm like, oh. (laughs) So every time I'll say to him, "Um, okay, the next thing I write, I'm not telling you anything, I'm going to keep you fresh and pristine. And then he says, like, all right, good luck with that. I don't think you'll be able to
0: do it. <laughs> yeah, I guess I had, I had not thought about that, that you really, you have to really be purposeful in what you're revealing as you're going. And that's kind of interesting because that's really, to me, that's a real essential part of this story is what people choose to reveal about themselves. What these women choose to hide, the face that they put to the public, Right, exactly. But I think I was trying to
1: set up that idea or kind of the metaphor of the pond in the heart of their town that from the Mm. surface, their pond and, you know, everything looks beautiful, but kind of look below and it's just, it's not that same pretty picture. So I was trying to kind of establish that early for the reader that this town might look ideal. And these people might look perfect, but, and these relationships might seem, you know, enviable, but it, when you look a little deeper, nothing,
0: nothing's quite as it seems. Nothing's quite as it seems. That is what keeps you reading for sure. Oh, God. I'm glad you brought up the pond because I actually had written down that quote from Cassie. She says, Oak Hill Pond is a bit like the community itself picture perfect at first glance, but you probably don't want to know what's going on beneath the surface. And so that gets me to, I, I really wanted to talk about this, this town, this suburbia, um, very cookie cutter, really lovely, um, but it is, it's not really. So the setting was very important, I think, to this story. I think so too. And I have to say, it's funny because um, where I
1: live, in New Jersey is maybe just about twenty minutes away from where I grew up, and then I also worked in a different direction, in about twenty miles in another direction, in a town that's also very similar. So it's funny; I still know people from each one of these areas, and every time I'll speak with someone, they'll say, "Oh, you based it on here, or you based it on here." It's just like this, and I'll <laughs> say, "Really, it's kind of a combination of all of these towns." And I think um, in New Jersey, you can find a lot of these towns where there's this quaint, charming downtown area and everything seems lovely and, the, and people seem helpful and friendly. But I, I have known people a bit like the characters in the story. People will say, did you base these on real people? And again, they're sort of composite characters. And um, for example, my mom still lives in the town where I grew up. And there are a lot of people who will start meal trains as one of the characters does in the novel. And you get the feeling that it's not necessarily motivated out of generosity or goodwill. It's more that I'm bringing you this casserole. And so I deserve an inside look at, you know, what's really going on behind the scenes. And even in our town, I think we had an incident where there was someone on a meal train and there was a notice if you signed up there will be a cooler on the porch, please leave your meal in the cooler, do not ring the bell, do not expect to interact with the family. And some people were put off by that, they thought that this meal was almost like a ticket or access to the people at what's not really a good time in their lives. And so I want it's something that's always kind of baffled me um,
0: that this exists. And so I wanted to include it and explore that. Yes. And that, I love what you just said about motivation, right? That what are people motivated by and is it generosity or is it this idea that we would like to see the cracks in the veneer of someone else's life? Exactly. And you get to that a lot through gossip in this story. Mm -hmm. There's a moment where it's at a full neighborhood level. Like the whole neighborhood is focusing their gossip on this one couple at one point. And one of the characters calls it, um, She says, we were able to purge every ill-formed, mean-spirited thought we'd ever harbored about them, neighborhood-scale vomiting, sickening, and delicious. You, I think, just have captured the essence of how we talk about others, that kind of group focus or hate almost, right? That's born out of our own insecurities, I think. Exactly. That's what I think too. It's so much not necessarily about the subject
1: you're talking about, but more about what's lacking in your own life that it feels almost good to think like, okay, well, I might have this going on, but it's not as bad as what they're facing. And the, it's it's a shame almost um, like misery loves company, but escalated to a new level. Yes. I think
0: you did a beautiful job capturing how people get caught up in that, right? Thank you um because I don't think these point of view characters that you've given us are are all struggling with their own uh identity and authenticity. and um, you know, you haven't written a bunch of women that are gossipy and hateful and you you really but you you give us a window into how that happens, how that sort of um hate speak and othering becomes almost contagious
1: right it sort of feeds off itself and becomes bigger than than it could be almost in sharing it it's like they they're turning on
0: one another and yes at one point Rachel one of the points of view says that she's um, they're fervent whispers. I keep quoting from it. Sorry. I took so many notes. Cause I was like, Oh, that was really beautifully said. I really love the way she said that.
1: Oh, I really, I appreciate that because just, I am really struggling with the opening chapter of
0: a new work. and
1: I'm, I'm like doubting myself. So I, I am so grateful for your kind words.
0: <laughs> I took a lot of notes. I felt like, um, this moment with Rachel where she is suddenly the the object of this whispering of this gossip and what, and how that, how she identifies with that. She's, you know, that they, um, their fervent whispers floated over hedges through picket fences and around corners and all the conversation stopped as soon as I came into view. Mm -hmm. She feels not included and on the outside. And so I think that that, that fear of rejection is one of the motivators happening in this story. fear of not fitting in and being rejected. Absolutely. Feels like an essential theme happening through these characters.
1: Yes, definitely. Each one of them sort of struggles in their own way. Uh, You know, the babysitter and, um, you know, the, the moms, just all of them. Even the ones who seem to have it together are still often find themselves on the outs with other members
0: of the community. Yeah, and that, maybe this is an odd segue, but that made me want to talk to you about the first book that you wrote, which was uh, called Sad Sect. Yes. That was also a kind of rejection of the story. Absolutely, yes. The story is a a memoir. It is based on um, being laid
1: off. It sort of, it chronicles the period that came after my husband and I both lost our jobs within six weeks of one another. And And I just saw a few weeks ago, there was a story in the Wall Street Journal about how in the U.S. we always ask people, what do you do? And so your whole identity becomes, whether you want it to or not, becomes tied to what you do and how you answer that question. Yeah. And I think for both my husband and myself, we, I guess we didn't realize how caught up in that we were. And then when there's no job, it's... um, you know, it's scary, not only financially, and then also, you know, you worry, I know it's a lot, fortunately, it's a lot less common of a worry now to have that resume gap. But at the time we were laid off in 2013, 2014, you kind of panic, how long can I be out of work before a future employer says, like, what's wrong with these people? (laughs) Why are they Why is no one hiring them? And, um, So it really and especially we were applying for things and the rejection emails would just come in. And I think, you know, if you have a job and you're applying and looking for another and you get an email that says we're moving ahead with a more qualified candidate, you can kind of take it in stride because, you know, maybe you had your hopes up, but you still have a paycheck coming in. You haven't necessarily lost anything. But as those sort of almost like a numbers game, the more you put out there, the more rejections you get, the worse you start to feel and the more desperate and kind of panicky you yeah. you really wonder. And I say, I think, too, everybody kind of feels this way. Um, and going back to being moms, I feel like pregnancy, you can handle all of it because you know it's coming to an end (laughs) after nine months. This is all you have to endure you know, with the the swelling and the headaches and everything else. But when you're out of work, you don't know when is that next thing coming my way or when am I gonna get an offer? And so I think the open-endedness coupled with the rejection was just kind of like a double whammy for us.
0: Yes, it's really insecurity. Exactly. I think that you've written about it as, You've shared this story and I think that you make it seem and that particular kind of rejection out of employment makes you reevaluate where you are, who you are. And it can, and it can seem, I'm going to use your own words, can seem like less of a disaster and more like destiny or part of a brighter, bolder future that you haven't ever dreamt of. If you had stayed where you were. Exactly. That's from a blog that you wrote about it. Oh, thank you. Thank you for reading yeah, I love that idea that, I don't know, my family went through something similar, my husband. Oh, so then you know how. And exactly what you just said about tied to identity. Yes. It was very, it was very emotional, but I think um, just to, just to get to my point that I think you're, you've written about it in a way that has not Pollyanna, very realistic, but also that. When you look back at the experience, it may look like less of a disaster than it feels right now. I think so, too, because especially, you know, my
1: husband, he had not been happy in his role. He'd been there 18 years. Yes. He was getting on a train at, you know, like 545 in the morning and he was falling asleep by 830 at night. And rightfully so. <laughs> these were these were very long days. And I think, too, for me, if I had stayed in my role, I never would have written that memoir. It would not have occurred to me. And I think it had been a long time goal of mine to write a book, but it always seemed like something out in the future. Like, okay, when you have more time, when you have more space. And I don't think I would have pursued it, except that in that time, I felt like, all right, you know what? You've got nothing else really going on. Nothing's working out for you. Why not carve out a little something like a creative project to try to stay sane? and that's what motivated me to to give it a shot. And then of course I took classes which I think were so helpful. I think without the encouragement of other people who were trying to write a memoir at the same time, I might have given up and just, you know, gone back to binge watching TV shows and
0: <laughs> Yeah, I think that's very good advice, right? To seek out other people that are going or that are trying to grow in a similar way. You know, continuing education, being a lifelong learner is is always a is always good advice, is always a good path forward when you feel stuck. I think so too. I'm
1: kind of I'm as I was mentioning, I'm feeling a bit stuck at the moment. And so I'm thinking about taking another class at the end of May, just to try to think in new directions and and get that spark back a little bit.
0: Yes. And sometimes that spark is in you, but it takes someone else seeing it to light it. Exactly. And that it's that group experience of a class. Because I think we're all self-reflective. You can read and research on your own all the time, but there's something very different about being in a group and having someone else say, oh, you are good at this, or I love the way you're doing that, or you should do more of this, right? That that is a, um, it's like a multiplier on your growth. Yes, to get that
1: feedback in real time is so valuable.
0: Yeah, so you narrated your own memoir. I did. You narrated this first nonfiction, um, and, and then I read that there was a serendipity that led you to to your next audiobook production. That your literary agent forwarded you an email, and the email, uh, the person was actually someone that you knew from a long time before. And so there was a serendipity in how you came to your next audiobooks. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, sure. So it was
1: actually my young adult book, He'll Be Waiting. So when I was working through edits on The Perfect Neighborhood, I found online a developmental editor who was highly recommended. And I loved her website. Her name's Amy Tipton. And she's just such a wonderful advocate for authors and um, aspiring writers, really encouraging. And even when she's done with your project, she stays in touch. And that's kind of how this came about. So she had sent me an email overnight saying, I don't know if you have any short stories, but this guy I know is looking for some foreign anthology you might want to reach out. And so when I looked at his name, I recognized it. And I thought, why do I know that name? And so I Googled him and I saw that we had gone to college together. And not only that, we had been in a public speaking course together, <laughs> which was, I, I am a very anxious public speaker. And I put it off as long as possible. It was a requirement to graduate. Now, he, on the other hand, was like a thespian. Like, I I remember being in the class and thinking, um, oh my, like people around were kind of slumped over their desks, let's check on their watches. And I thought, you know, everybody look up, this is as good as like off-Broadway. So pay attention. So sure enough, I could remember one of the speeches that he gave because he tied it into a sting song. And um, so I said to my husband, You know, should I write to this guy or am I going to look like a weirdo that I have been remembering this speech that he wrote 25 years ago? And my husband was kind of like, you go to the grocery store and you can't remember basic items like bread or milk. How are you remembering this guy's speech from... So I decided, you know what, I've got nothing to lose, which has kind of become like my new mantra. <laughs> so I wrote to him and he wrote later that afternoon and um, so generous with his time, uh, which I think has been one of the most exciting things about this whole path is finding just the kindness of people that you don't really know who are willing to take the time to talk about what you're doing, what they're doing. Yeah. And see how you can come together to support one another. And so we scheduled a call, and he was saying, kind of, what are you working on? And, um, you know, we're always looking for new projects for audio. Send me what you've got. And so I sent him my young adult novel. And then a few months later, they offered um, to put it on audio. And it was so, so exciting. I was
0: just, you know, thrilled to have that opportunity. When you wrote about it in your blog, I think what I was drawn to was you how did you just phrase it like why not right nothing left to lose I don't have anything to lose what's the worst that can happen that flows from dealing with rejection right like if you've had to deal with rejection you you know things that don't work out the way you thought they were going to work out that one of the byproducts of that is the courage then to be like well why well, should reach out he wrote about how his response was um that he just responded with well how can I help how can I help you yes. I had said to my husband, you know, he could
1: either ignore the email completely, which would be fine, or he could, you know, send back something pleasant like, "Oh, haha, yes, Amy's, you know, lovely," and then maybe close his laptop and make fun of me to his coworkers or his family or <laughs> something. Like, hey, this girl's been remembering my speech for twenty-five years, but um, what he did was so above and beyond, and I just thought, you know, such a, a, a like a lovely surprise from the universe.
0: So then this is your second audiobook that you've produced as a fiction, right? So you narrate your own memoir, your own nonfiction, and then you contract and you do your fiction work um with narrators. This audiobook, The Perfect Neighborhood, has five powerhouse narrators. Yes. I know. Amanda Dolan, Priya Iyer, Hillary Huber, Laura Jennings, and one of my personal favorites, Gail Shallon. Um when you were writing these points of view you you wrote these strong female points of view very distinct characters did you hear them in different voices like did you think that was the way it should be produced into an audiobook You know, I I think I hadn't even let myself dream that it could get to that point. And
1: so I think when the publisher Crooked Lane came back and said, we've sold your audio rights and uh, it's going to be a cast. I just couldn't believe it. I was, I felt so fortunate. And when I first heard it, it just, it almost seemed like something that I hadn't written, that it was just something completely separate and on its own. I felt like they, especially having had the experience of narrating my memoir, that gave me such a greater appreciation for what you do and how challenging it is to bring characters to life and to just to nail those inflections and to keep, just to keep your voice animated and to hit everything.
0: Okay, that's a good spot to pause and listen to some of the audiobook. But before we dive in to part of the story, I want to share some exciting news. This episode is being sponsored by Dreamscape Media. Dreamscape is an independent, award-winning audiobook publisher. They produce a wide range of titles from motivational self-help to suspenseful mysteries like this one. I love that their goal is to provide the best, most high-quality audiobooks to listeners everywhere. And I hope you'll connect with them. Visit them at dreamscapepublishing.com, where you can sign up for a weekly newsletter that has audiobook deals and updates on their regular audiobook giveaways. You can also connect with them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. I'll put all their links in the show notes. Okay, back to the story. You'll remember, this is a full cast production. Narrators Amanda Dolan, Priya A.R., Hilary Huber, Laura Jennings, and the narrator you'll hear right now, Gail Shalen. She's the voice of Cassie, the babysitter. This is from The Perfect Neighborhood, written by Liz Alterman, produced by Dreamscape Media.
2: I lean against a tree, listening to crickets and whispers a.k.a. Oak Hill's summer playlist. Everyone stands still as statues, waiting for the dreaded, over here, or got something. I hold my breath, watching the police comb Oak Hill Pond, as Kyle Kinsley claps me on the back. Kyle! I jump. Holy crap, you scared me. I gasp for air, as if I'm the one at the bottom of the muck. Police officers in boats the size of bath toys has spent the last hour dragging the still water while the crowd looks on. Hello, Cassidy, Kyle says with a wave, as if this were just an ordinary Saturday night. How are you doing? How do you think I'm doing? I'm a person of interest in a missing child investigation. The bad babysitter every parent in Oak Hill hates. I'm completely falling apart, asshole. I wanna scream. But Kyle's a good guy. Brilliant. But awkward. Odd, sure, but not a dick. So I bite my lip, shake my head, and turn back to the pond where the officers move so slowly it's like they're scared they might actually find something. Do you think he's in there? He asks. Billy, I mean, do you think he's in there? I narrow my eyes and stare at him. The harsh glare of floodlights turns Kyle the yellowy white of a potato chip. The lawn surrounding the pond shines like that cheap plastic grass you stuff in an Easter basket. Everything looks fake in this creepy glow. And for the millionth time since Thursday, I wish none of it were real. That I'm tripping like the guys in my gym class who mess around with microdosing and mushrooms. It's 10 p.m. The police and the mayor agreed that searching the pond for Billy's body should be done at night. So it won't alarm the local families. That's Oak Hill for you. Never let anyone think this is anything other than a quaint little Norman Rockwell town. Like, if you search for a missing kid during the day, Oak Hill won't top those stupid 10 best towns to raise your family lists. Everyone around here makes a part time job out of pretending their lives are perfect. Meanwhile, they can't go seven seconds without gossiping about one another. I would know. Since Thursday, stories about Billy, his family, and me have been spreading faster than lice through a preschool. Eighty, maybe a hundred people have come out tonight. Only a handful look worried. The rest seem straight up interested, like they've got a front row seat to the best show in town. I imagine them shoveling down their dinners and reminding their spouses, set the DVR, we've got ourselves some real live drama right here in Oak Hill tonight. Vultures.
0: very different women did you always have this multiple point of view like was there a point where you thought oh I'm missing a point of view I need to add a character or was there one that was a stronger storyteller as you started oh that's a great question I
1: think uh it was challenging I knew I, I knew I definitely wanted Rachel and I wanted Allison and I wanted Cassidy And then as the story went along, I thought, you know what? I'd like maybe Lindsay, who's kind of, as I like to say, I think she was fun to write because she was that kind of snarky mom who felt like her own life was kind of perfect. So, and she didn't really have any skin in the game. She doesn't have a missing child. She's not the babysitter. Um, She also thinks her husband is very nervous now that there might be a predator on the loose and she believes he's overreacting. So she's not even that worried about the safety of her own children in Oak Hill. She's, you know, more concerned with uh, why am I drinking wine out of a plastic solo cup? Where's my glass? You know, that kind of thing. And, um, you know, what about who's got the best pool guy and what are we serving at this fundraiser? And so she was fun to write and I wanted her to kind of bring in a different perspective. uh, One that was maybe, I don't I don't know if lighter is the word because I know a lot of people say, oh, she was so catty. I, I didn't like that character, but I wanted her to be able to share things that the other characters might not have been privy to, or I wanted her
0: to weigh in in a different way. I love that you included a teenager. Like a lot of that behavior begins when you're a teenager. I think so too, right? What you're surrounded with and your influence in Yes, and how you choose to outward face. Like she has really the healthiest there's a, there's also a lot of mother-daughter relationship in here. Yes. And she has what I think is the healthiest relationship and yet she keeps a big secret. Exactly. Uh she has a really great relationship with her mom and yet she still masks what she's really feeling what she's what she's really going through. Exactly. And so I think that I think demonst- using a teenager was a great demonstration of that. You know, how we put on this outward face or don't, you know, what we show to people and how that can lead to like really unhealthy decisions. (laughs) Exactly. I think so too. The last question that I always ask or that I try to ask has to do with the name of the podcast. So, Desideratum is a Latin word, it means things that you desire as essential. The reference to it comes from a poem that was called Desiderata that hung on the wall when I was growing up. Oh, my mom has it too really oh wow yes so it has really stayed with me so i ended up hanging up in in my own kitchen for my own kids and it was a reference point for what's valuable what's essential kind of life lessons so when i first started doing this podcast i felt like it was an opportunity for me to connect with storytellers and spend more time in story thinking about story because that felt essential to me so i like to be able to ask people for you if you had to explain to other people what is most essential what do you say that's a
1: great question um for me i think humor is most essential i think that is probably my go to i think whenever things are hard or challenging um I I used to, I grew up watching a ton of David Letterman and what I really, my goal career would have been to be a top 10 list writer. (laughs) I think there is something, there's something about it that if if I'm in a bad mood and something can strike me as funny, um, I can lift myself back out of it. And I think that was kind of what I was trying to do with the memoir was to kind of take a dark situation and, and not minimize it but point out sort of the funny things about it and I think um anytime there's an opportunity to use humor or I, I, I'll try even with my kids um being in school or my oldest is in college we do this thing where I'll send them um, like true or false and with a colon and then I'll just say something crazy and sometimes it's true and something sometimes it's just something completely silly that I've made up and it's kind of you'll always get back like an lol I hope that's false or uh and sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't but I think that that humor to me or, or trying to see um the bright or the lighter side is is something that kind of keeps me grounded and and especially in the face of so much rejection in this industry and and also being alone trying to create or to write I think it's um It's important to kind
0: of try to hold on to levity wherever you can. Yes. Levity is a great word for it, right? Because without humor, we are just the weight. The weight of things can be too much. I think so. I hope you enjoyed getting to know Liz Alterman as much as I did. Please check out all her work at LizAlterman.com. Thanks again to Dreamscape Media for sponsoring this episode. Check out their audiobooks, giveaways, and all their audiobook news through dreamscapepublishing.com. I'll put links in the show notes. As always, thanks for being here, and thanks for listening.